Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu indicted on three counts. Dershowitz disagrees. ISIS barely holds on. Kushner actually says something about his peace plan. And a UN report just shockingly accuses Israel of war crimes. I'm Winston R. Holland, and this is Mideast News Brief. Ah, so close. It's excruciating. It's excruciating. I almost feel like it's Providence that I started the show when I did, because there are two issues that are extremely important to me that I'm witnessing develop. The fall of ISIS and the Kushner peace plan. The former is for rejoicing, and we're going to get into that in just a minute about where that's at. The latter, well, we're going to discuss a little bit today because it looks as if it is going to be a lot of the same old, same old that the Palestinian Arabs have rejected and will continue to reject. Why? Because their leaders don't actually want peace. They want the liberation of Palestine. Fatah is the largest faction of the PLO. And they're already campaigning against this. As I mentioned last week, Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, this duly elected president who should have been out of office and or whose term expired in like 2005, yet is somehow still president of the Palestinian Authority. He's going around from country to country trying to sell these Arab nations on not accepting the Kushner peace plan. And of course, as we talked about as well, the Israeli right, who's likely going to be in the majority of the next election, are against it as well. And the plan hasn't even been released. <laughs> so I really don't expect much from it, but we're, we're going to jump into all of that in just a minute. So great to have all of you with us. First, we do have some breaking news, and I can't say that I'm not a little disappointed in the least, because... It just, it looks a little fishy. It's right before the election. And as Alan Dershowitz, the famous Harvard Law professor here in the States, uh, is pointing out there appears to be some really, really big problems and some big holes into what the Attorney General of Israel is doing and accusing Netanyahu of, specifically how it's pretty hard to kind of nail down these accusations that he actually improved, that he actually broke the law. So let me let me first read in the read the breaking news, and then we'll get into a little bit of uh, Dershowitz's analysis because I think it's really really important and enlightening. So here's where it says uh, Joel Rosenberg, Joel C. Rosenberg did a pretty good summary of this, and I'll, of course, have the link to all of this at MideastNewsBrief.com. Breaking! Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu indicted in three cases of bribery and corruption. Here's what we know. After months of rumors that it, it was coming, a thermonuclear legal and political bomb hit today. Israel's Attorney General is moving ahead with indicting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in three separate cases involving corruption and bribery. Netanyahu insists he is innocent and will be vindicated. Friends of the Prime Minister are calling the indictments a political hit job. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, if you, I mean, if you're on the Israeli center or left, you're pretty excited about this. 
It should be noted that a previous Israeli prime minister, Ehud Olmert, was indicted while in office. His government coalition unraveled. He was forced to step down as premier. He was eventually convicted and sent to prison. Several years before that, a former Israeli president, Moshe Katsav, was also indicted, removed from office, convicted, and sent to prison. It's far too early to say how these cases will play out legally, but the political states stakes could not be much higher for Netanyahu personally and for his Likud party. Quote, in a move that drastically shakes up Israeli policies less than six weeks before general elections, Attorney General Mandelbilt decided Thursday that Prime Minister Netanyahu will be charged with criminal wrongdoing in three separate cases against him, including bribery and the far-reaching Bazette corruption probe pending a hearing. So there are three cases that he's being indicted for bribery on. Case 4000, the Bezek Walla affair. There's the case 1000, illegal gifts affair. And the case 2000, the Yediat Aharonat, Israel Hayom affair. So that's what's going on. That just happened today. I was not necessarily expecting to report on this tonight. And I said tonight because I'm reporting this or doing this podcast on Thursday night as Friday is not working out for me. So any breaking news on Friday that comes out that I don't cover here, please forgive me. Scheduling just did not work out to do the podcast Friday. So I want to now get to Dershowitz, who obviously is a brilliant legal mind. He actually wrote a great book that I've listen to the audio on twice, The Case for Israel, that provides a lot of great documentation and argumentation against the false claims that are made daily, hourly, minute by minute against Israel. I mean, just with logic, with evidence, with power. It's a great read. The book's a little old. It's like uh, it was published in about 2003, but worth a read because everything from 2003 before that is was relevant to then, and it's relevant to the annals of history of how Israel is treated in the court of world opinion, how it's treated in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how it's judged by history, and how there's a double standard against Israel. But that's a side note. So he has been he's been doing this kind of thing for a long time, and. Perhaps he's biased, and you're going to get biased on, really on either way of someone typically who's going to give a political opinion about this. I will say, though, one thing I like about Dershowitz is that he's willing to criticize Israel when he thinks Israel's wrong, and he defends Israel when he thinks Israel is right. So he's been critical of many things of Israel. He does not just defend Israel no matter what, which helps me to be even more respective of his political opinion despite his amazing credentials in the arena. So this is from the Jerusalem Post, February 28th. Alan Dershowitz publishes letter defending Netanyahu. And this is a initial quote, to bring down a duly elected prime minister on the basis of an expansive and unprecedented application of a broad and expandable criminal statute endangers democracy. So he published an open letter on Wednesday addressed to Attorney General Mandelbilt in which he defends Netanyahu from the ongoing investigations against him. And I just want to get into a few of the quotes that I thought were helpful in kind of understanding the 
defense that Netanyahu has because if you're looking at the news on all of this, you can kind of get the idea that almost that it's like a case closed against Netanyahu. And Dershowitz does a great job for people like me who aren't legal minds and aren't as acquainted with the whole ins and outs of this whole process. He does a great job of of really kind of laying out the big holes that the prosecution has against Netanyahu. He says, To bring down a duly elected prime minister on the basis of an expansive and unprecedented application of a broad and expandable criminal statute endangers democracy. So there are the three cases right now against Netanyahu that I already mentioned, 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000. So in case 1,000, Netanyahu, he's accused of handing out favors and returns for gifts of cigars and champagne, so forth from friends. Dershowitz basically writes that there's no applicable law that defines the line of what would constitute bribery in this particular case. And here's what he says, quote, The accusation is that Netanyahu took too many such gifts and made too many favors in return. But how many are too many? (laughs) The law doesn't say, Dershowitz says, adding that, quote, No one should be charged with a crime unless he has willfully crossed a bright line and plainly violated a serious criminal statute. Now, that's a bit disturbing that they're willing to indict him indict a sitting prime minister when there's no clear line of what the bribery and corruption would be. In case 2000, Netanyahu allegedly supported a law that would curtail the Israel Hayom Daily newspaper to gain fair coverage from its competitor and a deal struck with its publisher. Netanyahu ultimately voted against the law, leaving prosecutors to deal with possible motives, but there is no real evidence that can be used against him. So He allegedly supported the law that would have helped him out, but he ends up voting against it. <laughs> you're going to perhaps have a hard time prosecuting that one when he ended up voting against the thing that you're indicting him for that he initially supported, supposedly. And then he noted in case 4000, where Netanyahu allegedly supported regulatory decisions made by civil servants, in return for fairer coverage, a prosecution would be based on, quote, speculation concerning the state of mind of the participants. The relationship between politics and the media, and between politicians and publishers, is too nuanced, subtle, and complex to be subject to the heavy hand of criminal law, he wrote. Dershowitz asserted that the decisions of politicians are often motivated by the coverage they would receive from the media in an attempt to achieve some sort of self-serving result. Quote, to empower prosecutors to probe these mixed motivations is to empower them to exercise undemocratic control over crucial institutions of democracy, he reiterated. Dershowitz called on Mandelbelt to let Netanyahu continue his important work and to let Israelis decide at the ballot whether they accept the prime minister's behavior or not. And here's how he ends off pretty powerfully. To criminalize these political differences is to endanger democracy and freedom of the press. So I'll have this video linked at midisnoosbrief.com. I'm sorry, the article linked at midisnoosbrief.com if you want to take a look and also read Dershowitz's 
full letter. So we'll see how all of this plays out. How much will this impact the election? I, who knows at, the, at this point. Uh, the indictment also came out over a month before the election, so it'll continually be talked about. I think if they wanted to do maximum damage, maybe they should have waited till about April 7th. <laughs> um, but maybe this is a plan that they have and they can just cause it to, to just increase more and more and more and more and more and pick up fervor. People do have short memories and people have very strong political alliances. And so I'm not so sure because... Typically, for people to break with their candidate, it would have to be something so crazy over the top that would cause them to potentially shift. If there are these indictments that are really potentially not even crimes when it comes down to the exact letter of the law, in my mind, that's going to be difficult to try to sway someone away from Netanyahu. But we will see, we will see, and we will Watch that one very, very, very closely. So, I doubt that anybody who has followed the United Nations and their just unrelenting bias against the state of Israel to be real surprised by this report that just came out. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because... When the United Nations Human Rights Council comes out and says that the only democracy in the Middle East that's actually free, where you actually have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, basic human freedoms that are so restricted in so many other countries that actually sit on the UN Human Rights Council, it makes you kind of take a step back and go, I wonder how legit this actually is. But really, would we expect anything else from the UN Human Rights Council other than a condemnation of Israel and a minimization of anything that the terrorist group Hamas does? I mean, it's just par for the freaking course. It just really is. And that's why the UN Human Rights Council, as we're going to see even more in a minute, because we're going to unpack the UN Human Rights Council a little bit, we're going to see who is exactly on the UN Human Rights Council, and we're going to see exactly how they fare when it comes to human rights. And then from that standpoint, we can maybe make an informed, logical decision of whether we should listen to a word that the UN Human Rights Council says. And if you can't tell, I'm a little fired up about this because I'm sick of the hypocrisy of the UN and the double standard against Israel. It's it's disgusting. All right, I'll read the news. (laughs) This is from UPI, February 28th. Today, more wonderful breaking news. UN report accuses Israel of firing on unarmed civilians in Gaza. Would we have expected anything else? Would there ever be a UN report that came out that vindicated Israel? Never. The United Nations Independent Commission of Inquiry accused Israel Thursday of intentionally firing on children, journalists, medical personnel, and other unarmed civilians during protests in Gaza last year. The commission was asked 
by the UN's Human Rights Council to investigate all international abuse violations during Gaza Strip protests between May and December 2018. And again, the UN Human Rights Council is full of human rights abusers that hate Israel, but to them that's neither here nor there. The commission's report said Israeli security forces injured more than 6,100 Palestinians with live ammunition, killing 183. It added that 35 deaths included children, three medics, and two journalists. The report said another 3,100 were injured by bullet fragments, rubber bullets, or tear gas canisters. In contrast, one Israeli soldier was killed and four were hurt during the demonstrations, it said. Commissioner Chair Santiago Canton says... The commission has reasonable grounds to believe that during the Great March of Return, Israeli soldiers committed violations of international human rights and humanitarian law. Yeah, what about Hamas? Did they? Some of these violations may constitute war crimes or crimes against humanity. It must be immediately investigated by Israel. So this commission, they apparently conducted more than 300 interviews and reviewed more than 8,000 documents related to the demonstrations before issuing the report. Be very curious to know who they actually interviewed. And of course, Israel rejected the council's findings, and they say that it ignored the country's right to protect its people from attacks. And this is Foreign Minister Israel Katz said, The commission produced another hostile report, false and biased against Israel. Its entire goal is to defame the only democracy in the Middle East and its right to defend itself against terrorism of a murderous organization. Also, Anne Herzberg, who's a legal advisor of an Israeli-based agency that follows international NGOs, she criticized the report, saying, The UN Human Rights Council, dominated by dictators and rights abusers, has yet has issued yet another absurd report whitewashing Hamas terrorism while condemning Israel for protecting its citizens. It is laughable that the UN treats cross-border violence as the same as a domestic policing situation, she said. So I, I have the the initial statement. I yes, I I just mustered it up within me. <laughs> I I just, it took everything within me, but I actually went to the UN Human Rights Council's webpage. It, it was hard. I was uh, triggered. Okay, not really, but uh, I had to see for myself, okay, what did they actually say? And I'm not going to read through it. I'll link to it, and you can go read through it if, if you want to subject yourself to anything that the UN Human Rights Council has to say. But... There was a paragraph in it that I thought was was helpful in, in kind of illustrating the bias here and illustrating what Ann Herzberg just said was a whitewashing of Hamas. The commission investigated every killing at the designated demonstration sites by the Gaza separation fence on official protest days. The investigation covered the period from start of the protest until 31 December 2018. 189 Palestinians were killed during the demonstrations inside this period. The commission found that Israeli security forces killed 183 of these protesters with live ammunition of these 
protesters. 35 of these fatalities were children. We'll get back to that in a second. While three were clearly marked paramedics and two were clearly marked journalists. But, but you know what they don't mention? They don't mention the number of Hamas terrorists that were killed. And the fact that Hamas terrorists were sending, they had arms of their own, they were sending incendiary balloons that were just burning up just hundreds of acres of Israeli land. Molotov cocktails were being sent. Uh, This idea of peaceful protesters standing there just and peacefully protesting the situation in Gaza is just, it's absolutely beyond the pale. And there's no mention, no mention of Hamas terrorists in this group of 189 Palestinians that Israel supposedly killed. We know Hamas shoots rockets next to hospitals. We know Hamas hides weapons underneath the the floors of schools. We know Hamas is more than happy to see their own people killed. Why? So they can get all this sympathy from the international press who they know is going to whitewash their terrorist activities and then go scream and yell to the United Nations, get the UN Human Rights Council to do reports like this, publish these reports, these biased reports, and show how evil Israel is, oh, and how just poor and oppressed Hamas is. They actually do, if you read down, you got to go all, you got to go several paragraphs down. They, they finally mention that the commission found that some members of the higher national committee organizing the protest, which includes Hamas representatives, encouraged or defended demonstrators' use of indiscriminate incendiary kites and balloons, causing fear among civilians and significant damage to property in southern Israel. The commission concluded that Hamas, as a de facto authority in Gaza, failed to prevent these acts. Yeah, they sure did. They didn't just fail to prevent them. They were encouraging them. And and this, this, this is really, I mean... You just, you've got to laugh because it's so absurd, the picture that they paint of, of Hamas. Quote, the commission finds that these protests were a call for help from a population in despair. Not only Israel, but also the de facto authorities led by Hamas and the Palestinian Authority have responsibilities toward them. Okay, so they, they, meant, you know, they mentioned that they're being fair, right? They mentioned that. Hamas and the PA had they 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 have some responsibilities toward them. Really? Yeah, how about organizing and promoting these protests? The commission calls on Israel to lift the blockade of Gaza and all and on all three duty bearers to comply with their responsibilities and improve the living situation in Gaza. Gaza is run by Hamas. Gaza is run by a smaller terrorist group, Islamic Jihad, both of which call for the destruction of the Jewish state. It's in the Hamas charter. So don't give me this idea that we need to just open the southern border. Boy, does that sound familiar. We just need to open the southern border and we need to let just 
Hamas flood in? Really? Let terrorists just flood into Israel? That's what the United Nations is recommending? And if that's what the United Nations is recommending, then it's recommending death and destruction on Israelis. I'm sorry, but I don't know how else to take this. The UN will always and only vote to condemn Israel. And that is why the United States has got to stand our ground as an, as an ally of Israel. We have to. So I want to dive into the UN Human Rights Council for just a minute. And let's look at their current membership. There's about 50 countries on the UN Human Rights Council. Right in front of me, on the wall where I speak, there is a map. This map is put out by a wonderful organization called Voice of the Martyrs. And Voice of the Martyrs is dedicated to bringing awareness of Christian persecution around the United States. I'm sorry, around the world. Just simply looking at this map, they have it broken down by restricted countries and hostile countries. Restricted being the worst, hostile being not quite as bad, but still pretty bad. Let's look at members. These are the people that are on the UNHRC and that are commissioned with the responsibility of protecting human rights. (laughs) And when you look at some of the people on this list, how are they on this committee? No wonder, no wonder they're putting out reports trashing the Jewish state. So, number one on the list, Afghanistan. Yeah, they're rated R, restricted. The worst of the worst. Bahrain, rated R. Bangladesh, rated R. China, rated R. Cuba, rated R. Egypt, rated R. Eritrea, rated R. India, hostile. Iraq, rated R. Nepal, hostile. Nigeria, hostile. Pakistan, hostile. I mean, Pakistan is on the UNHRC, Human Rights Committee. You would think that in order to serve on the UN Human Rights Committee, you would at least, you would at least ascribe to the Universal Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the UN put out in 1948 and still holds today. You would think that that would be a requirement. I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well because we're going to see how what is written in this and what members of the UNHRC are supposed to uphold, there's a huge, huge, huge difference. Okay, where was I? So yeah, Pakistan, rated R. Philippines, hostile. Qatar, restricted. Saudi Arabia is on the UNHRC. It truly is the theater of the absurd, the UN. Somalia, rated R. And remember, from week one or two, We talked about Open Doors USA 2018 report of Christian persecution. Where did Somalia rank? Number three. Somalia, rated R. Tunisia, rated R. Those countries which are restricted or hostile to Christianity that do not have the the freedom of religion, or if they do have some freedom of religion, it's it's very tentative. 
are serving on this committee. Now, what are they supposed to be upholding? Well, if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the United Nations that they ratified in 1948, if you just simply look at Article 16, Article 18, Article 21, I'm just going to share a few highlights because I think it's instructive on whether or not the UNHRC has any legitimacy whatsoever. Here's what Article 16 says. Men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, have a right to marry and and to found a family. They're entitled to equal rights as to marriage during marriage and at its dissolution. Marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intending spouses. Really think that's going on in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Afghanistan? I mean, <laughs> not quite. Now, now, this one really gets me. Article 18. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This is the kind of stuff the UNHRC is supposed to be upholding. And yes, uh, China and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Afghanistan and Eritrea, all these countries are supposed to be like helping to enforce this stuff. Incredible. 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 Article 21. Everyone has the right to take part in the government of his country directly or through freely chosen representatives. The will of the people shall be the basis of the authority of government. Yeah, not quite. Tell that to President Xi of China. Oh, hey, you're not upholding the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And how is it that you're on the UN Human Rights Council? I mean, why why do you think they would want to serve on it if they, in fact, themselves don't uphold the basic Universal Declaration of Human Rights from the UN? Because they want to be able to influence the kind of garbage, evil reports that were just put out against Israel. I don't know what else to say about say about that. I don't buy it. Look, and I'm not going to sit here and say that Israel, in the Great March of Return last year, did nothing wrong. I'm not even going to say that there might not have been a Israeli soldier that did something he or she should not have done, maybe shot someone they shouldn't have. Israel is not perfect. Israel is a nation. There's not a nation on earth that's perfect. Why? Because nations are made up of people, and people are not perfect. So the last thing I'm going to do is pretend that Israel always does everything right. That's that's would be to miss the point. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not the point I'm trying to make. But the point I am trying to make is that when you're going to whitewash a terrorist group like Hamas and just focus on Israel, who had a very difficult situation dealing with Hamas terrorists, which that report fails to mention that of those 189 Palestinians supposedly killed by Israel, that the vast, vast, vast majority of them were Hamas terrorists. And they even admitted as such. I remember when it was going on. They were talking about that very thing, 
They were get, when the numbers were rolling out, right? The the international media was trying to downplay that they were Hamas members, and Moss was going, "Oh no, 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 yeah, no, this is us. It's us. It's us. It's Hamas." You know what's anti-Semitism when there's a double standard? I'll say it every show if I have to. It's kind of hard to start off the next section because it's it's some bad news, but ultimately there's good news because ISIS really is on the brink. It really is just a matter of time. I thought for sure when I was doing the show last Friday that by the time I did the show this week, Baghuz, which is the last little village that ISIS has, it really makes you wonder if their intrepid leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is in there. Probably not. How much you want to make a guess that this dude isn't actually standing strong with his men until the end? How much he really believes that if he died in jihad, that he would go get his 72 virgins and all of that? Like, how much do you think this terrorist of terrorists really believes that? He'll tell all of his other men to die for the cause of jihad, and they get, you know, all of this, these wonderful pleasures in the afterlife. But you think this guy really believes it? You think that guy's going to be in there? No. I bet that dude is long, long, long gone. But the guy is pure evil. And so what else would you expect? ISIS, their little territory has not officially fallen yet. At least as of this broadcast, which is Thursday evening, February 28th, 2019. And unfortunately, a mass grave was found in last Islamic State bastion, according to the Syrian Democratic Forces. This is Reuters from today. A mass grave containing the bodies of dozens of people killed by Islamic State, including many women, has been found in territory recently seized by the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, an SDF official said on Thursday. The SDF is poised to wipe out the last vestige of Islamic State's territorial rule at the besieged village of Baghuz near the Iraqi border. But the operation has been held up as the SDF seeks to evacuate thousands of civilians. So this is our guy, Maslun Kabani, the SDF commander who we quoted an interview from several weeks ago where he basically said, yeah, Islamic State, they should be done in a month. We're at that point now, if you look at the time frame of when he was interviewed and everything, we're at that point now. So perhaps he's a week late, but you know, hey, <laughs> you can't you can't expect fighting terrorist groups to go perfect. So we got to give the guy a little slack, right? But here's what he said: We will announce the complete victory over Desh Islamic State in a week, SDF Commander Kobani said in a video released by the SDF on Thursday, speaking during a meeting with a group of SDF fighters freed from Islamic State captivity. The SDF announced on Thursday that it had freed 24 of its fighters from the jihadist group, so that's good news. Though the fall of Bakuz will mark a milestone in the campaign against IS, the group is still seen as a security threat using guerrilla tactics and still holding some territory in a remote area west of the Euphrates River. The mass grave was found around one week ago in an area of Baghuz already seized 
from IS and is still being excavated, SDF Commander Afrin told Reuters. It was not clear when the people had been killed. And then it goes into more about that, which I really, really don't want to. But I, I do want to go into one more thing about the Islamic State. And this is what I've been talking about from the beginning, is when the geographic caliphate falls, which is a very, 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 very good thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that ISIS is over. And I saw this today actually from the Western Journal. It's a, a video that they, they did, and there's a, there's a transcript, so I'll be, I'll be linking to that. But this is kind of what we're looking at once ISIS falls. Now, don't get me wrong. I get wrong. Again, that, I mean, that is, it's great news. It's very, very, very good news. And the Kurds deserve a, uh, the applause and accolades and benefits of a hard, hard, hard-fought victory against the worst terrorist group, at least in modern times. And of course, the U.S. forces in the air deserve a lot of credit for their work in acting as the Kurdish Air Force to help them defeat this heinous terrorist group. Now, that does not mean that the ideology of the Kurds and of the the PKK, I would agree with at all. They are very socialist communists. At the same time, they're a whole lot better than the Islamic State. And it, from what it looks like and from what I've seen, a whole lot better even than the, the Assad regime. And so, again, be looking for something like a Kurdish state. Once ISIS falls, I think we're going to see something very interesting develop over this next year with the Kurds. So keep your eye on the Kurds. I will as well. But this is from the Western Journal. ISIS may plan multi-million dollar revenge on the West. This was from February 13th, but still very, very, very relevant right now. ISIS may plan multi-million dollar revenge on the West. The Islamic State terrorist group's territory is eroding, and pretty much gone now, but the millions it has stashed away to fund new attacks still makes it a serious threat, according to a February United Nations Security Council report. The report called the Islamic State, quote, a covert network that, quote, remains a threat as a global organization with centralized leadership. It does. It makes you wonder where Baghdadi is, right? He, he might be at some luxury hotel in the West Bank and nobody knows it. I mean, probably not, but I've heard it said the PA, they're, they're terrorists in suits. The Palestinian Authority are terrorists in suits. They do the things that terrorists do. They reward suicide bombers with honors and call them martyrs and give their families pensions for life. And the more destruction they do, the more money they get. The PA is a terrorist organization. And we're going to talk about Kushner's plan in just a minute. It's the same old, same old. At least that's what, it, at least that's what it's looking like. I, I can't fully judge it. Until the plan comes out. But, ugh. Anyway, where was I? President Donald Trump's aggressive plan of action against the Islamic State in Syria with the support of American allies has resulted in a loss of terrorism for the group. However, the Security Council said the Islamic State should not be written off. 
The Islamic State remains by far the most ambitious international terrorist group and the one most likely to conduct a large-scale complex attack in the near future. The Islamic State, quote, is assessed to have bulk-stored cash in its core area and smuggled some into neighboring countries for safekeeping. It is also reported to have invested some of its reserves in legitimate businesses. They're not going to go away just because they lose a geographic region, which in effect means that they're going to be in the realm of Al-Qaeda and these other organizations that don't necessarily have a quote-unquote geographic caliphate but still inflict terror and death and destruction all across the world. So that is the latest on ISIS. I am hoping this time next week I will be able to announce that it has fallen, that Baguz has been taken by the Syrian Democratic Forces. I know the people inside of Baguz would be thrilled with that, and please... Pray, please pray that it continues to be successful and that it falls and that, oh, that as few civilians as possible would would be hurt in the exchange. Pray for the SDF that as few of them as possible would be hurt and pray for, I, I even pray for ISIS fighters. I do. I do. Speaking of Voice of the Martyrs, I actually wasn't planning on sharing this story, but it's it's illustrative of how God can work and move in even the worst of people. So the Voice of the Martyrs, like I said, it's a very respected global organization. And this was a couple years that I saw before ISIS was pretty much down to nothing. This was a couple years ago. There was a story in the Voice of the Martyrs magazine about ISIS had lined up several people in this village and had done a mass shooting. And this ISIS fighter comes to a man who was a Christian, and the man had a Bible in his hand, and he said, Look, I know that you're going to kill me, but after you do kill me, will you please read this book? And so the man is standing there, has the book in his hand, and the terrorist sadly kills this Christian man, this very, very, very brave Christian man. The terrorist kills him. What does this ISIS terrorist do? He does what the guy said. He picks up the Bible and he starts to read it. (laughs) If you can believe it. I I mean, it's phenomenal. He picks it up and he begins to read it. Oh, and guess what? The guy ended up repenting of what he was doing and gave his life to Jesus Christ. So it was a couple years ago I don't know all the details of the story. I hope to be able to find that one day. Maybe I can find that and share it in more detail in the uh, the next broadcast or in a subsequent broadcast. But, wow, that was so encouraging to me because we tend to see these ISIS criminals for what they are. I mean, they are horrific, right? They're terrible and unbelievably awful what they do. But none of them, nobody, no matter how bad, is too far from the grace of God when someone is willing to lay down their arms and come to him. God will even accept a repentant ISIS fighter. Pray for those ISIS fighters. There there could be a few of them in there who are very much regretting their situation that God can touch. 
Have you ever been to Israel? I am blessed to say that I have. And during our trip to the north, one of the sights that particularly struck me was that of the Golan Heights. And I remember thinking as I'm in my tour bus and as we're going along, looking at this hill, really kind of a large hill with this military base on top, I remember thinking, wow, what a incredibly strategic position Israel has by having the Golan Heights. The visibility on top of the Golan Heights is just incredible. It's very strategic, and Israel would be unbelievably foolish to cave to any kind of Palestinian or any other demands to give the Golan Heights up. And fortunately for Israel, they have some friends in the United States Senate who want to help them to keep the Golan Heights. And this could be in conjunction with the Kushner peace deal. It really could. Uh, These two things happening simultaneously. I would be very surprised if Kushner's report came out and the Golan Heights was not included within Israeli boundaries. I'm not sure, but I would I would be surprised. And and here's kind of why. Or as we'll see in this article, it it touches on that a little bit. This is from World Israel News, February 28th. See, lots of just news stories today. Usually I'm kind of collecting stories from from throughout the week, but I mean there was so much breaking news from today that I just again, I could I could so easily do an everyday show. <laughs> I could. There's so much news and so much to talk about. And I, I love doing this, but at this point in my life, a daily show is not feasible, perhaps one day. All right, World Israel News, U.S. Senators Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, and Mike Gallagher, not the famous Salem Radio Network talk show host, I suppose, unless there's something I don't know that he's a congressman in Wisconsin, introduced companion resolutions on Tuesday urging the United States to officially recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. It's about time. The bill emphasizes the strategic importance of Israeli control over the area, which a Jewish state captured in the 1967 Six-Day War, in protecting civilians from threats such as from Iran and Syria and Hezbollah and Lebanon. Israel annexed the region in 1981, a move that has not been recognized by the international community. When you've got countries that are attacking your country, and you fight back, and then you end up taking land that was used to attack your country, it is more than justified that you retain that territory, especially if it serves as a strategic outpost to help ward off other similar attacks in the future. This is basic logic. This is this is basic laws of war, international norms. The Israel would be nuts. You know, to cave to international pressure on this, look, it's kind of like with Trump and the media. It does not matter what he does. They are going to attack 
and destroy him. 93, 94% of all media against Trump is negative, right? So the idea that Trump should try to cozy up to the media, become their friends, try to get the Washington elite to like him and all of this, it would be stupid. And I think he knows it because he knows no matter what, they're going to trash him and go after him and call him all these things that he's not. Same with Israel. The international community, no matter what, as we saw with this bogus UNHRC report, they're always going to condemn and attack Israel, no matter what, no matter what they give, no matter how much they give up, which, if you look at the original mandate for Palestine from the 1920s, Israel, the, the, Jew, the Jews were given originally what we now know today as Israel, Gaza, the West Bank, and Jordan. That was all going to be given to the Jews and everywhere else to the Arabs. And then at the the San Remo conference in 1922, Jordan was taken away. And so, okay, well, now we just have Israel. And then it was the the rest was taken away uh, after that toward the West Bank and Gaza. So now they just had this tiny little strip when originally they had all of what I mentioned before. So the UN is always going to go after Israel, no matter what. So you know what? If they've got a strategically important area that they won in a defensive war to help ward off further attacks, it would be ludicrous for them to give it up. The bill adds that, quote, It is in the United States' national security interest to ensure that Israel retains control of the Golan Heights and that the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad faces diplomatic and geopolitical consequences for its killing of civilians, the ethnic cleansing of Arab Sunnis, and the use of weapons of mass destruction. Prime Minister Netanyahu, he he actually raised the issue of the Golan Heights during a meeting with John Bolton back in January. And even though the U.S., does not recognize Israeli control over the Golan Heights, the good news is that it voted for the first time in November against an annual UN resolution condemning the Israeli position. Again, it's about time. And isn't that something? Every year, the UN General Assembly condemns it. If you've watched the show, or I'm sorry, if you've listened to the show for a few weeks, you know by now I I don't really hold the United Nations as a very credible, (laughs) legitimate organization. But, so, good job, senators. Uh, I don't, when you look at the House of Representatives and the slim majority that Republicans have in the Senate, I really don't expect this to actually go anywhere. However, it's an important first step. The bill is written, it's out there, and so in the future, it can be resurrected and promoted. But I'm glad they got the got the idea out there and they started the conversation. Okay, let's talk about Jared Kushner, the beloved the beloved son-in-law of the president of the United States. He actually said something about his peace plan, believe it or not. He actually came out and gave us a little bit of a hint. It's kind of like waiting for Star Wars Episode 7, when we all thought that the you know Disney taking over Star Wars was actually going to be a good thing. They'll be able to sink billions of dollars into it, and Star Wars will just be this 
amazing franchise that's the coolest thing ever because, you know, Disney is running it. <laughs> and and you saw episode seven and you're like, oh, okay. And then you saw episode eight and then you knew it was over. <laughs> it was just over. It was all over. Maybe J.J. Abrams will do something with episode nine. We'll see. Or maybe we won't see, actually. Maybe we won't see. Okay, where was I going? Yes, I did. I did start talking about Star Wars on a Middle East News Brief broadcast. I, I did, indeed. Right, so Kushner spoke about his peace plan. He gave a little bitty trailer. Little, just a little bitty trailer, like that first trailer for episode seven. And you're just, you're just eating it all up because, ah, oh, it's Star Wars. And you've been waiting for so long for that next episode. Okay, maybe it wasn't quite like that with this, but you get the idea. The long-awaited U.S. peace plan expected to be rolled out soon after the April 9th elections will seek to resolve border issues. Jared Kushner said in an interview aired on Monday. Kushner speaking with Sky News in Arabia and Abu Dhabi during a five-country trip to the Middle East to rally support for the peace blueprint said that the team that has worked on the plan for some two years has, quote, been trying to formulate a realistic and just solution to these issues that will allow people to live a better life. Now, think if you're, <laughs> if you're the diplomat in these countries. One day, uh, Mahmoud Abbas stops by, you know, Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Yeah, I, I'm here to tell you why you should not accept the peace plan. You know, and then the next day, you know, Jared Kushner is there. Oh, here's, you know, here's why you should accept the peace plan. Then another day, a member of the Likud or someone comes by. Oh, here's why you shouldn't accept the peace plan. <laughs> Kushner said that the plan was very detailed and focuses on resolving the border issue. And if we can resolve this factor and bring peace away from intimidation, then we can guarantee people's freedom. I think he's well-intentioned. I think he wants to solve the problem. I think he's trying, obviously. He's been working on this thing for two years. The only way you're going to guarantee any semblance of freedom in the West Bank and in in Gaza is to remove the current leadership that is there that is not only thoroughly corrupt, but thoroughly committed to jihad and the destruction of the Jewish state. Kushner said in the interview that the team focused on four core principles. Quote, the first is freedom, where we want people to enjoy their rights of opportunity, religion, and worship, regardless of their beliefs, as well as respect. Kushner said that the Trump administration would like to see Gaza and the West Bank united under one leadership rather than the situation that exists today. They've tried that. They've tried doing a unity government, and it has not worked out too well. I'm not sure what their what their formula is. Maybe they have some kind of formula to make it happen, but again, even if they do make it happen, you're, you're doing a unity terrorist government. <laughs> so I don't know what that's going to accomplish other than a more cohesive terrorist unit running the, the West Bank and Gaza. So it also says here that Kushner scheduled to make stops in Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, Saudi Arabia, trying to muster up support for the plan, and going with him, U.S. Mideast Envoy Jason Greenblatt and U.S. Envoy on Iran, Brian Hook. So it didn't take very long 
for opposing political parties to really kind of go after Kushner's comments. Naftali Bennett coming back with saying, quote, This proves what we already know, that the day after the elections, the Americans will push the Netanyahu Lapid Gantz government to allow the establishment of a Palestinian state on Route 6 to agree to the division of Jerusalem, and Netanyahu will be forced to acquiesce. Getting strong, getting strong, getting close to election time. (laughs) That's what's going on. It's getting close to election time. Gotta hit it hard. So, of course, Netanyahu and Likud didn't take that line down. They responded by saying, quote, When Bennett and Shaked established the new right, they said they did so in order to attract votes from Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz in order to enlarge the right-wing bloc, and that they would not shoot from inside the tank. Now they are making false accusations against the Likud in order to attract votes from the Likud, which will lead to Lapid-Gantz left-wing government, where their party will be larger than the Likud. Also more on the right, the new union of the Bayit Yehudi, National Union and Otsma Yehudit parties, known as the Union of Right-Wing Parties, said that Trump's, quote, plan of the century repeats the failed paradigms that brought us more than a thousand deaths and a thousands of missiles on Israel and presents a clear and immediate danger to the existence of the state of Israel. Only a strong religious Zionist party will prevent Netanyahu and the Likud from this type of dangerous adventurism, the party said. Cool. So you've got all of that fighting going on on the right about the comments. And then on the left side of the spectrum, Labor Chairman Avi Gabe welcomed Kushner's comments saying that, quote, separation from the Palestinians on the basis of a two-state solution is in Israel's interest. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of easy on the left. Yeah, two-state solution. That's what we want. And on the right... They see the problems and issues of terrorism that would come with that. And again, we know that Hamas and Islamic Jihad specifically state in their charter that they want Israel's destruction. And so a Palestinian state could very, very, very easily be the launch pad by which they do yet another attack on Israel. So the idea of a two-state solution, in my mind, does not make a whole lot of sense Well, what does make a lot of sense? Maybe a one-state solution. I can't say that I know the ultimate answer on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but a Palestinian state with terrorist leadership doesn't seem to me like a very practical solution. If I'm being brutally honest, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I I think probably there's got to be some kind of one-state solution, like what Carolyn Glick talks about in the Israeli solution. And by the way, what's interesting about the Israeli solution is when you look at who's read it, or I'm sorry, who read it and then who gave an endorsement of the book, you see John Bolton, which is Trump's national security advisor, and Mike Pence. (laughs) who at the time was governor of Indiana. So you've got two unbelievably prominent people who have endorsed this book uh, on the very on the very back. And of course this book came out in like 2013 before Trump was I mean I guess he was on on the radar in the sense that he he's been toying it with it for a long time, but he wasn't anyone feasible. I mean, and I saw I remember picking this up again recently and looking at the back and going, "Dang, that's the VP and, and National Security Advisor. So, 
who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll be totally wrong, and Kushner will come out with this like crazy uh, one-state solution, and that the borders he's talking about, uh, there's some type of demarcation, and the Palestinians generally control this area, and but Israel has hegemony over the whole area. Who knows? I, that would be re- it. Man, if it was a one-state solution, that would actually be really, really interesting, and I would. Oh, I, I would be beside myself just wanting to dig in. I'd be like, honey, I'll see you in a week. I'm going to study <laughs> the Kushner peace plan. I'm not so sure she'd be okay with that. Uh, but I, I would be pretty excited. That that would be that would be something. I'm all right, I'm going long. I wanted to get to the uh, a little bit. Uh, today was pretty historic in that the second summit with North North Korea ended. It ended abruptly. And Trump ended up walking away, right? <laughs> Art of the deal. You got to be ready to walk away. But real quick, there was a, an analysis in the Jerusalem Post that I, I, I thought was, was helpful in its relation to the Middle East. And this came out today, of course. And it's this. Analysis. Trump walking away from North Korea increases pressure on Iran. Everyone would have been thrilled if U.S. President Donald Trump had reached a historic deal getting North Korea to denuclearize. One thing I like about this administration is that they're willing to walk away from the deal. They're not so desperate for a foreign policy achievement that they're willing to do anything and everything to get the deal, such as sending pallets and pallets of cash to the largest, like billions and billions of dollars, to the largest state sponsor of terror in the world, who then take that money and funnel it to their proxies and kill innocent Jews, Arabs, Yazidis, Christians, on and on and on and on and on. I'm very glad about that. So, and look, play the long game. And I love how he surprised Kim Jong-un with, oh, by the way, yeah, we know about all these other missile, about all these other nuclear sites that you uh, did not know that we knew. <laughs> so it's like, oh, yeah, I'll get rid of this one and, and re- I'll get rid of this one site in return for complete easing of all sanctions. And he's like, oh, yeah, but what about all these? <laughs> you know, and of course, little rocket man was surprised and wasn't willing to budge. And so he walks away. And that guy's going to have to deal with the shock over the next few weeks. So, okay, I know I'm talking about the summit and it's not particularly North Korea, but there was just, there was something about it that made me go, dang, that's that's some leadership there. Because he knows the media is going to trash him. Oh, he failed, he failed, he failed, he failed. Which, even if he had come with an agreement, they would say he failed, they would trash it. Except for maybe a few. So, you know what? Why not actually step back be willing to walk away and and see if you can get a better deal because no deal, as we learned with the JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal, no deal is better than a bad deal. Okay, but what does this ha- what does this have to do with Iran? But in the absence of that, in the absence of not getting a deal with a deal with North Korea, the result could turn out to be very positive from the Israeli perspective, since it could put more pressure on Iran. If Trump had cut such a deal, 
Iran could have pushed back against U.S. sanctions and asked why it needs to make more concessions when Pyongyang got a deal without even giving up its nuclear weapons. Israel has strong hope that the current U.S. pressure campaign will lead to Iran rolling back its ballistic missile testing and reducing its footprint in Syria. If you live in Israel, Iran is important. (laughs) And so you don't want to do a bad deal with North Korea that can give Iran some ground to say, hey, you need to ease our sanctions. Hey, you need to lift our sanctions. None of this means that the final results of the U.S.-North Korea negotiations will have a good impact on the nuclear standoff with the Islamic Republic. Either blown negotiations, which leads to a conflict, or a premature deal could still be negative. But it does mean a win for Israel since, at this particular stage, the Trump administration and those forces looking to send a message to Tehran that it cannot wear down the U.S. pressure are holding their ground. I think when the world sees this, if they look at it objectively, if I was an enemy of the United States and I was watching what just went down, I would be thinking to myself, this guy is the real deal. This guy is not just going to do any kind of deal just so he can get a foreign policy win that he can go home with. Honestly, it's still kind of shocking that we have a president like that. It's still kind of shocking. I could very well see another summit in a few months. And honestly, I think another one's coming. And look, it might be even better for Trump politically. Like, let's say a year from now, in the heat of the 2020 presidential election, the agreement is made. There's real progress. Kim Jong-un truly makes a commitment to denuclearize, which of course you you have to have all kinds of verification methods in place to make sure that's actually happening. Unlike the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which had certain sites, military sites, you couldn't even inspect. So that would have to be comprehensive. But we really could see something come about with that. All right, I'm going to end off with this. I was going to talk about more having to do with that historic covenant between Pope Francis and Sunni Islam's most popular imam because there's some pretty (laughs) disturbing stuff going on with this particular imam. He is not your standard fair imam of peace that maybe really does want no terrorism and wants peace. I'll have to get into that next week, but I have that pressed and ready. I wanted to end it off, end off with this because it, in, in, in some ways, I, I like this story, but in, in other ways, historically, I understand the difficulty of, of this type of attitude in the nation of Egypt. So President Sisi of Egypt came out and he said, We'll build synagogues should Jews return. This is by World Israel News. If Jews are interested in establishing a Jewish community in Egypt, the government will build synagogues and other communal institutions. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi told a U.S. delegation during a two-hour meeting last week, according to a report in the Jerusalem Post. President Sisi spoke fondly not only of Egypt's past vibrant Jewish community, but also said that should there be a resurgence of the Jewish community in Egypt, the government will provide every religious necessity required. That was a very 
warm embrace. He basically said that there should be a resurgence of the Jewish community, the community with synagogues and other related services, said Friedlander. Sisi's comments came a couple of weeks after the United Arab Emirates officially recognized its small Jewish community, a move seen as an effort to present present itself to the West as a country that is tolerant of other religions. When I read this story, it reminded me of a story that Henry Kissinger told in his book, World Order, which is a, a pretty good history book. I'm not all up and up with Kissinger's politics and all that. So just because I read a book by Kissinger doesn't mean <laughs> I think he's probably a bit more of a globalist than I am. But he had a very interesting experience with the past president of Egypt, Anwar al-Sadat, who, as you may know, was assassinated in October 1981. So he really, Sadat, I think, did have a vision for peace in Egypt and coexistence in Egypt, but he also paid the price of it. So this is from, I just want to read, it's a real quick story from the book World Order that that I found really helpful in kind of understanding the historic context of what's going on. And here's what Kissinger said. Two events in my experience symbolize that vision, that vision of, of peace. In 1981, during his last visit to Washington, President Sadat invited me to come to Egypt the following spring for the celebration when the Sinai Peninsula would be returned to Egypt by Israel. Then he paused for a moment and said, Don't come for the celebration. It would be too hurtful to Israel. Come six months later, and you and I will drive to the top of Mount Sinai together, where I plan to build a mosque, a church, and a synagogue to symbolize the need for peace. What happened just months after that experience Kissinger had with Sadat on October 6, 1981? He was assassinated. Sometimes these guys, they on some level do want some peace, even though Egypt is restricted because of its very large Muslim population. I think on some level, El Sisi would like to have coexistence. I know he's tried to protect the cops on some level. I hope he is able. Look, there's there's that again, that, that prophecy in Isaiah 19 that there's going to be a highway from Egypt to Israel to Syria. It's in there. In the, that day, in the last days. It's hard to see with Syria right now, but I see how it could be feasible with Egypt. And who knows? I'm going to be watching for that. I'm going to be watching for that prophecy to unfold. It doesn't look like anytime soon, and maybe it won't be for another 500 years. I don't know, but I will be looking for it. Okay, so I am going to end in the broadcast with my customary quote of the week. This one is short and sweet, which is a good thing because this broadcast has gone way long. But hey, it's a podcast. I can do that. I don't have any time constraints on me. This is a quote from Benjamin Disraeli, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And this is what he said, five words, diplomacy, 
is war without violence. Diplomacy is war without violence. And I think we see many, many examples in history where great things can be accomplished, such as even the fall of the Soviet Union with diplomacy. All right, well, that'll do it for this week's edition of Midi Snooze Brief. Be sure to visit us at midisnoozebrief.com, and there you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And as always, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here again next week.